This is Guns and Butter. But the, the, the names keep on coming up. The names are the same. Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid Almidar. The same names were the ones that were getting this wire transfer from Princess Haifa. Remember that? The wife of uh, Ambassador Saudi Prince Bandar? She was wiring them when they were in San Diego, 50 to 70K. And the FBI is supposedly still investigating that one. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a far... You know, don't hold your breath on that one, folks. I mean, that's... The Saudi Prince Bandar, whose nickname around the White House is Bandar Bush. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Sander Hicks. Today's show, Beyond Bullets, Who Killed Dr. David Graham? Sander Hicks is an investigative journalist, author, and independent publisher. He founded and runs Vox Pop, a publishing company, coffeehouse, bookstore in Brooklyn and Manhattan, New York, and publishes New York Megaphone magazine. Hicks founded Soft Skull Press in 1996 and in 1999 published Fortunate Son, the controversial George W. Bush biography by Jim Hatfield. Sander Hicks is author of The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up, which breaks new ground on the working-class intelligence assets and whistleblowers who tried to stop 9-11. Hicks has reported for Alternet, GNN, Long Island Press, New York Press, and INN World Report Television. Today's presentation was given on February 11, 2008, at the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists in Berkeley, California. Sander Hicks. I'm very honored to be here with you and everyone here. Thank you to you all for coming out to this great sacred room, sacred space. It's been quite a day. I, I did speak at Stanford Law School earlier today. And uh, there has been some controversy. There, there was an email sent around Stanford Law School uh, to all of the entire faculty of the law school and most of the student body encouraging people not to come to the speaking event. And uh, we did get some negative press uh, on the National Review site. Uh, but I think that just goes to show how continuingly relevant the topic of 9-11 and 9-11 truth is. You know, we had this quizzical resignation of candidate Mitt Romney recently. And, I mean, it didn't make any sense at all. But what he said was that he was withdrawing from the race because of the war on terror. And he said some slanderous things about the other candidates, and then he withdrew. We saw recently that the, the candidacy of Rudolph Giuliani hit a brick wall. You know, some of these right-wing candidates are still living in a world in which the 9-11 entity can be invoked as some sort of media spectacle and that they still think they can count on some sort of stimulus response, that if they say 9-11, they're hoping it'll, re it'll recall the, the, the spectacular images that have been burnt into our consciousness and that they're counting on the American people having the same response that they had uh, in the, you know, the immediate aftermath of the months and maybe a year or two after 9-11. But we know that the growing 9-11 truth movement has already attained certain key successes. 
And of those key successes, I believe, um, are the fact that we have shifted public opinion away from a stimulus response, knee-jerk reaction in which we endorse wars of foreign aggression and passively accept the official story. And I'm talking about scientific data. I'm talking about the Scripps Howard University of Ohio poll, the New York Times CBS poll. The polls show that there's a shift in public opinion. And just look at the fact that, that Rudolph Giuliani, Mr. 9-11, just failed miserably to be able to bank on or capitalize on his so-called heroic 9-11 status. So what I'd like to do in my talk tonight is start talking about some of the new research that I've done and focus in on a death and honor that death, honor the work. But since I'm also a spiritual person, and I think there's a lot of spiritual energy in the room uh, tonight, I don't want to leave us in the death. I, I'm a Christian and also a revolutionary. And I really believe that one of the messages of Christianity is that death is not the end. And that even if you're a secular leftist or a secularist, I think you can follow me here. What I'd like to emphasize tonight is that there is a flip side to death, a resurrection possibility to death. And that even with the death of activists, there's a way to gain energy and there's a way to create new life out of their example and out of what, what, they, what they give to us by their example. There's got to be a way to broaden our hearts, to enrich in our hearts, to gain courage through the stories and the information that I'm going to give you. I got into this really starting back in 1999, being the publisher of a biography of W. Bush called Fortunate Son. This was a Southern working class writer outside of the, you know, the Illuminati of New York media. And he had an ambition to really get the goods on this underqualified uh, governor of Texas who was a pretender to the throne. You've got to remember that it was widely acknowledged that the, the candidacy of W. Bush was really a joke, even to mainstream Republicans who thought McCain was a shoo-in in 99, 2000, right? But then Karl Rove uh, really sort of showed his muscle. And part of that Rovian muscle, Rovian strategy, was the fact that they took a story long rumored to be true, according to the Washington Post, the Bush cocaine story, and they gave it to Hatfield, knowing that he was doing a biography with St. Martin's Press, and he had an ambition to really make good. And so this great book, this Fortunate Son book that Hatfield wrote, that had everything, it had the Bush SEC investigation, Bush's business ties, and uh, you know, his skeevy deals in oil in Texas, ties to Enron, really relevant to us, the Bush-Bin Laden business connection. Well, this book also, at the final hour, was also given the Bush cocaine arrest story. St. Martin's Press is about to publish it in October of 99, and suddenly Dallas Morning News gets 
the dirt on Hatfield himself, that the author of the Bush biography, it turns out, has a few skeletons in his closet, and suddenly the spotlight shifts from W. Bush onto Hatfield. And the mass media never turn it back on Bush. It's, it stays on Hatfield. And so I picked the book back up, and we went on this mass media roller coaster, thinking that we could get the book into the hands of the American people, and that the First Amendment would be a real thing in this world, and that truth and falsehood would grapple on an even playing field, and that truth would win out in the end. It's one of the assumptions that the First Amendment is based on. However, the, the First Amendment was not written in a world of corporate media control. And that's a factor that really precludes a really living, breathing First Amendment in this country. This is kind of what I told the kids today at Stanford Law School. I don't know if they really heard me, um, but uh, that's one of the problems that we're facing. Not only is there an assault on the Bill of Rights in the context of 9-11, but the, the entire, uh, the preeminent right of the Bill of Rights the freedom of the press and religion and speech, i.e. the First Amendment, is itself under attack systemically uh, through uh, the problems, the contradictions of our age of corporate media control. Because, for example, in this Fortunate Son experience, this hip, friendly producer at 60 Minutes who had been kind of blowing smoke and been very nice and sort of indicated that he would give our book and this story a fair shake well, he ended up not reading the book. He ended up making his story all about Hatfield and Hatfield's problems. And I asked him, I literally asked him, like, what happened? Where, where did, what did we do wrong that you ended up burning us with your story? And he snapped at me. He said, it's not the media's job to be critical. <laughs> so in July of 2001, Jim Hatfield, the author of this book, ended up committing suicide. He had no other option. He could no longer publish. His other book contracts were killed. He couldn't provide for his young family. And uh, it was a, a tragic end. Um, I do think the suicide was legitimate. I investigated it myself down in Arkansas. Not 100% certain, but I'm pretty certain. The system killed him and left him high and dry. So when 9-11 happened, I was on a leave of absence from Soft Skull Press, and I was in a position to uh, look deeply into 9-11. I was already a lifelong peace activist, uh, you know, was inspired to try to keep Bush out of office, not because I'm a Democrat, but because I didn't want another war in Central Asia coming from a Bush presidency under flimsy pretexts. That's what we saw in the first Gulf War. And I was doing everything I could to prevent that from happening again. When 9-11 happened and Osama bin Laden was pinned with it, I was trying to get people to look at Fortunate Son. This is the book that had the Salim bin Laden, Arbusto Energy, W. Bush business connection while other biographies of Bush at the time did not. So I started researching. I started doing things that other researchers either just couldn't do or didn't want to do, like going to Canada and meeting with Delmart Vreeland, the 
naval intelligence asset who wrote the note about 9-11 from inside of a Canadian jail cell. And my experiences with him enriched my understanding of how this guy could have possibly had foreknowledge of the details of the 9-11 attacks. And I put that in my book, Big Wedding. I also talked to a guy um, named uh, Randy Glass, also on the front cover of the book here. Randy Glass was very similar to Vreeland. He also wrote a note um, predicting 9-11 in advance. A note that he, um, uh, Randy Glass also had some foreknowledge of the attacks and was also trying to warn people and stop um, the attacks from happening. Randy Glass had been a jewelry con man who had turned state's evidence and was started to work for the Joint Terrorism Task Force of Florida. Randy Glass infiltrated a band of Pakistani arms dealers that it turns out were actually uh, associated with the Pakistani ISI. And this, these ISI agents also had foreknowledge of the attacks as far back as 99 and told Randy Glass that the towers were going to come down when they had dinner right out, uh, outside the towers in a restaurant there in Tribeca. Randy Glass uh, wrote letters to Senator Bob Graham, his senator, and uh, could not get any kind of response. You're listening to investigative journalist and author Sander Hicks. Today's show, Beyond Bullets, Who Killed Dr. David Graham? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Big Wedding also has historical context looking at the Iran-Contra scandal, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International scandal, and uh, the, you know, the essential historical context you need to really understand 9-11. So it's a good book on 9-11. However, nothing in Big Wedding was quite as compelling a smoking gun as the stuff I found now. The death of Dr. Graham is, is historically significant, and it compels me to get out on the road and talk with you. What's different about this is that for the first time in history, one of us, a 9-11 truth activist, has died of foul play. His death has never been investigated by any law enforcement body. I went down there in September and October of this past fall with a reporter buddy of mine from North Carolina, and we did the best we possibly could. And I think the tide is going to turn. My reporter buddy did a big story, and Collateral News of Philadelphia is beginning to pay attention. Let me tell you about this guy. This guy's name was Dr. David Graham. He was a Bible Belt Christian, and you might not... You might be thinking, oh, is he a Christian like, like Bush? No, he's like a Christian like if a homeless guy moved into a trailer on his property and was squatting uh, in his backyard, instead of calling the cops, David Graham would go out there and, and take care of the guy, and bring him food and clothing. You know, he was a real roots Christian. He was a Vietnam vet. Uh, he had done all this charitable dentistry work uh, in the outback of uh, Vietnam, you know, trying to win hearts and minds by working on the poor, working on their teeth. He was a dentist. He, he started a natural toothpaste company and was trying to uh, get off the ground, trying to pursue that American dream. He had, in fact, he was such a creative guy that he actually started 
a uh, hundred different little corporations, uh, just trying to like, you know, he's one of these guys who's always starting at something new, but he never quite hit it, you know, never quite attained that American dream. Very much like Jim Hatfield, you know, Jim Hatfield, the, uh, the Bush biographer, was also kind of full of this Willie Loman kind of ambition and, and uh, never quite connected that ambition to something really meaningful that really worked in the world, that really connected with people. So David Graham was also an uh, independent journalist. He had a radio show on AM radio and was taking on local corruption. The local DA there in Caddo Parish at one point was dealing narcotics and uh, had somebody killed and then framed it on a local Air Force guy. And so Graham kind of stood for the local Air Force guy and met this local attorney, uh, John Milkovich, and together they advocated for this guy's innocence. So Graham had the tenacity of a pit bull progressive, even though he wasn't really a liberal or a progressive um, politically, uh, as you can see if you read his report, he had this tenacity and this righteousness that compelled him to go up against the system. Specifically, he met a guy by the name of Muhammad Jamal Khan. Khan was very slick and seemed to have a lot of money so Graham said, well, maybe you should invest in my natural toothpaste company. So they start having meetings. Khan doesn't want to meet in public. Khan only wants to meet at his townhouse. At his townhouse, Khan has a conversation in which he happens to let slip that his father knows Osama bin Laden. Khan tells Graham he's interested in buying a box truck. Khan also introduces Graham to a couple of young Saudi doctors who are supposedly learning dentistry in the US, but they don't speak English. So that's three red flags right there about Khan that Graham has. Graham's naturally very skeptical um, and starts thinking that maybe something is up with these young Saudi doctors. And the box truck, like Oklahoma City, maybe there's some sort of bombing that's being planned against the local Barksdale Air Force Base, you know, highly sensitive base, that's where the B-52s fly out. So when Graham is in Khan's kitchen at one point and he sees cardboard boxes underneath the kitchen table with Arabic names on them, he writes down the names and he calls the FBI. And he says, this guy, Khan, uh, says his dad knows Osama bin Laden and he's got these names, Nawaf al-Hazmi, Khalid al-Midar, and Fayed bin Hamad uh, in his kitchen. FBI... A couple days later, calls him back and says, yeah, Dr. Graham, yeah, we got this strange phone call. Somebody called us and said that they're going to get whoever ratted out Muhammad Jamal Khan. John Milkovich, the attorney who Graham was friendly with from the, uh, the, Air, the Airmen case, John Milkovich also told us when we were down there that the FBI went up to Graham a couple of times and said, how's your health, Dr. Graham? No, you don't understand. How's your health? The FBI was obviously trying to shake Graham off here a little bit. When 9-11 happened, Graham was aghast. Newsweek publishes the full-color, glossy story that has 19 faces. Two of those faces Graham recognizes, the young Saudi doctors that had been introduced to him by Khan, namely Nawaf al-Hazmi, and Fayyad Bana Hamad. Graham is detailing everything. 
keeping exquisitely detailed scientific records. Remember, this is a guy who uh, has, has a background as a, as a dentist, scientist, entrepreneur. He starts creating a book called the 9-11 Graham Report. At one point, he travels to Washington, D.C. He uses his contacts inside the Christian Coalition. Uh, they help him get a meeting at the Senate House Joint Inquiry uh, with a guy named Stephen Cash, who's extremely suspect. But we'll go into that maybe later. Still, nothing really comes of Graham's trip to D.C. And he decides that he's going to publish his book. And he's effectively going to say that he met two of the 9-11 hijackers and the FBI did nothing. In fact, the F he was going to publish the, the account of how the FBI threatened him. The FBI doesn't want him to publish the book. According to a friend of Graham's I met, the FBI was really quite adamant that he not publish the book. In fact, hours away from publishing the book, now we're talking May 29th, 2004, Memorial Day weekend, Graham is on the road traveling in Texas to meet a friend whose wife is dying of breast cancer. Graham is literally hours away from publishing the book. He's phoning his friend back in Shreveport with some last-minute changes, when suddenly Graham is poisoned. May 29th, 2004, somewhere between Lake Conroe, Texas, which is north of Houston, and Dieball, Texas. We know this because Graham pulled his car over and called 9-11 somewhere in Lufkin County. However, no 9-11 records exist of that call. We know this because he pulled into a convenience store that was, and was, he was under videotape surveillance, although no videotapes to this day exist. The family went to try to go get them, but they had been seized. Graham at first thinks that he's undergoing some sort of heart condition or maybe a seizure. His friend from Shreveport, Pastor John Booty, comes and says to the doctors, I know this might sound like I've been watching too much television, but you should check for foul play. They do a toxicology report, and it comes back positive for poison, and a security guard is put on Graham's room in the emergency room in Texas. Then the FBI shows up. They tell the doctors, don't worry too much about this guy. He's suicidal. He's crazy. Back in Shreveport, Shreveport FBI tells the local TV station, yeah, uh, we were not involved, and we don't know if this was suicide or not. The family, the friends are aghast. There's no way Graham committed suicide. Graham was en route to a friend's wedding. He was in high spirits that day. He had a great big breakfast with his friend Gordon Klausman in Texas and was on his way. We think he was poisoned with... Um, ethylene glycol that was somehow inserted into a bottle of iced tea that was in his car when he was poisoned. Now, how do we know for certain that Muhammad Jamal Khan, the handler of the so-called terrorists, was actually working with people who were later involved in the 9-11 attacks? Well, I think one of the best pieces of evidence that exists, that exists to this day is actually from a court record. Khan was constantly uh, in little brushes with the law, like got arrested for soliciting a prostitute, um, got arrested on a wire transfer charge, and he got arrest arrested for an illegal firearm. And in one of the plea agreements that he signed regarding a major wire transfer of $9,000, 
there's actually language in there from the prosecutor, and the prosecutor has a paragraph that says, this plea agreement in no way exonerates Khan from any future prosecution that we may or may not want to do regarding his involvement in the attacks of September 11, 2001. And that right there is, 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 a, is a documented instance of the prosecution of the, the local court in Louisiana knowing that this guy was, in fact, involved in the September 11th attacks. However, Khan is gone. He skipped, uh, he got bailed, and he skipped town, and now, according to sources in Shreveport, he's living in, back in Pakistan. So he somehow got out of the country, um, and I think he was helped by the U.S. federal government. Why do I think that? Well, Graham's case is not isolated. If we could step back for a second, there's actually a huge pattern of U.S. federal protection of the 9-11 patsies, the 9-11 so-called hijackers. This pattern has emerged since I did my book, Big Wedding, and I think this is what is the real smoking gun for me. Now, some people think controlled demolition is the smoking gun, and I agree that controlled demolition is highly credible, and we should support the architects and engineers who have banded together, all 270 of them, they're doing their group, but I'm not an architect or engineer, I'm an, a media activist, and uh, coffee shop owner and a journalist, and I'd rather prosecute this case from a slightly different perspective. It's almost like we should look at the priors, look at the prior crimes of the U.S. state in terms of their so-called negligence, I believe was a deliberate negligence. We have to go right up against that official story that says incompetence and negligence uh, that is forgivable because it wasn't incompetence and it, and it should not be forgivable without some form of justice. You're listening to investigative journalist and author Sander Hicks. Today's show, Beyond Bullets, Who Killed Dr. David Graham? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The timeline of the, the priors that I would like to talk about the timeline of prior negligence or prior deliberate negligence, more likely, starts in year 2000. Winter of 2000, there's the terrorism summit, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Our CIA has it monitored uh, in high detail. And, this, and it's a terrorism summit being put together by the same, some of the same terrorist masterminds who were involved in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. That incident was also highly infiltrated by FBI. So we have this thing bugged. We're doing photo surveillance, and we know the names of Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar, two of the same guys that Muhammad Jamal Khan later has you know, under his uh, protection, the same names that were written on those cardboard boxes that Graham saw in Muhammad Jamal Khan's kitchen, right? Those guys are in Malaysia in early 2000 being monitored by CIA at their terrorism summit, and yet for some reason their names are not put on the U.S. terrorist watch list. When they come to the U.S. of A., it's September of 2000. They're met at the airport by liaisons from the Saudi embassy, the Saudi consulate in L.A., and then they are installed to live 
with an FBI informant in San Diego. That FBI informant is so sensitive that even a moderate centrist political insider like Senator Bob Graham and his book Intelligence Matters relates how curious he was about that FBI informant, Abdu Sadr Sheikh, that just happens to be living with these terrorist ringleaders, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. In fact, Senator Bob Graham wants so badly to, to subpoena that FBI informant as a witness for the joint inquiry, he, he actually prepares a subpoena. And he talks about this in his book. He, he said that this is the first time that a senator was going to subpoena the FBI. He's got the subpoena prepared. It's in his, his, his uh, jacket pocket. And he pulls it out during an FBI meeting. And the FBI looks at it like it's kryptonite. They literally just like go, and they just, they go up against the wall and they slither out of the room without touching the subpoena. And they say something like, you know, that's not necessary or, you know, we'll definitely produce this witness for you, but don't, don't, don't let me touch that. Because, you know, once you touch a subpoena, then you're served and you have to, you know, comply with it. In this case, the FBI literally just got out of there so quickly. We know now from a post recently on 9-11 Blogger of actual FBI documents, we know now that in 2003, that San Diego informant, Abdu Sadr Sheikh, was given a $100,000 payoff. He's still in witness protection. He's still being protected by the FBI. And this is the liaison that in San Diego, he was the handler of these two terrorist ringleaders. So then in November of 2000, the handler of the terrorist ring leaders was Muhammad Jamal Khan, who we also think was an FBI informant. I went down to Shreveport just last fall. I, through a stroke of luck, or maybe it was the spirit of history, walked into the Shreveport FBI office without an appointment. I, you know, tried to get the uh, special agent in charge of the whole office there to talk to me. Um, you know, I put my book underneath the plexiglass window, and I say, you know, I want to talk to... To the, to, the, to the SAC special agent in charge, Mike Kinder. And the receptionist is like, well, he's in a meeting. And I said, well, it's a matter of national security. <laughs> yeah, that actually got me. I know it sounds kind of outlandish, but that got me somewhere because she comes back. She said, no, he's still in a meeting. And I said, no, it's, it's a matter of national security. And here's the book again. And uh, finally, this guy just sort of strolls up to the window saying like, you know, uh, this guy looks like he's a cowboy. He's got a big mustache. And he's like, you know, I... Uh, I'm the, agent, I'm the desk agent on duty right now. What are you, what, what's your problem? And I looked down at his name tag, and it says Stephen Hayes. Stephen Hayes is one of the names from the 9-11 Graham report. It's one of the guys that Graham met with numerous times before 9-11. So we had this whole conversation. One of the things I asked him uh, about is, like, you know, why did you guys say that Graham was suicidal? And then he says this nonsense, nonsensical stuff about, well, Graham uh, was living in an apartment above his office. And Graham oftentimes didn't remember to lock up his office at night. You know, that's a far cry from suicidal. And I asked Stephen Hayes, was Muhammad Jamal Khan an uninformant? And Hayes says, we don't discuss informants. But no. And then I said, well, I'll take that as a yes. And he said, you can take that any way you want it. And then shortly thereafter, he, he turns to the receptionist and he says, Call security. So the, the, the Shreveport FBI 
uh, felt so guilty. I mean, you could just tell in his body language, the, the, the tick in his eye, uh, and the, the anger he was trying to exude at me. He was trying to intimidate me and just like glare at me with this really strange kind of like, I mean, the guy is holding back so much, obviously. You know, we're all human. Gandhi talks about, let's not see people as enemies. Let's see them as fellow human beings who do feel shame and guilt when they are, participate in, in a murder, in treason. And uh, th- this is the kind of thing I tried to point out in my letter to the Department of Justice that has uh, not yet gotten a response. But, but I really felt it. I really could see it through that you know, two-inch plexiglass window that this guy was literally holding back a lot of guilt in his heart. And so, back to the timeline. November 2000, Muhammad Jamal Khan is the handler of these terrorist ringleaders. But the, the, the names keep on coming up. The names are the same. Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. The same names were the ones that were getting this wire transfer from Princess Haifa. Remember that? The wife of uh, Ambassador Saudi Prince Bandar? She was wiring them, when they were in San Diego, 50 to 70K. And the FBI is supposedly still investigating that one. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a far, you know, don't hold your breath on that one, folks. I mean, that's the Saudi Prince Bandar, whose nickname around the White House is Bandar Bush. Also, in the Able Danger hearings, we're talking now about congressional testimony. Able Danger was this defense intelligence agency operation. You know, the U.S. military's, quote, best and brightest Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer told a congressional inquiry that his DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency operation inside the Pentagon, was doing data mining, that they were trying to find out who Al-Qaeda was, were they in the USA, in early 2000. And they created a chart. And on that chart were the names Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. And yet at a major able danger meeting, the names and faces were covered up with yellow sticky notes. Somebody in the top brass of the Pentagon protected those faces. In the same way, in August of 2001, the Mossad was tracking these guys. Mossad was about to interfere with their operation in Florida. Mossad had Mohammed Atta and Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar on their sites. How do we know that? Because the CIA deported the undercover Mossad operation right before 9-11, and Mossad then published a list of names of people that were planning an attack on the USA. And of those names were Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. Only then did the CIA put those names on the terrorist watch list, late August 2001. Not early winter 2000 from the Malaysian summit, but only then when they were compelled to do it because they were embarrassed into it by the Mossad. Finally, we have to look at Joe Trento's book. Joe Trento is the author of Secret History of the CIA, a great book called Prelude to Terror. It talks about the privatization of intelligence and how it contributed to 9-11. But his really great book is this new thing called unsafe at any altitude. It's all about aviation safety or the lack thereof. And according to his sources inside of Western and Saudi intelligence, our two guys over here, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar, were actually agents of the Saudi GID. 
the Saudi CIA. So this further exposes what 9-11 was all about. It almost was like a, a deal that was brokered amongst the international financial capitalists for a deeper relationship between Saudi Arabia and the Bush family faction of American capitalism. A multi-trillion dollar deal in oil is what is at stake. The interests of the U.S. empire are what are at stake here. And so for the first time ever, we've got this guy, Dr. Graham, dying for the truth. He joins the ranks of such prophetic heroes as Gary Webb, the San Jose Mercury News reporter who dug out the cocaine connection to the Iran-Contra scandal, who was pilloried and excoriated as a result. He joins the ranks of people like Jim Hatfield, the Bush biographer who I knew. Something happening You've been listening to investigative journalist and author Sander Hicks. Today's show has been Beyond Bullets, Who Killed Dr. David Graham? Sander Hicks founded and runs Vox Pop, a publishing company, coffee house, bookstore in Brooklyn and Manhattan, New York. Hicks is the publisher of New York Megaphone, founded Soft Skull Press in 1996, and in 1999 published Fortunate Son, the controversial George W. Bush biography by Jim Hatfield. Sander Hicks is author of The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up, which breaks new ground on working-class intelligence assets and whistleblowers. Hicks is reported for Alternate, GNN, Long Island Press, New York Press, and INN World Report Television. Today's presentation was given on February 11, 2008, at the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists in Berkeley, California. Visit his website at www.sanderhicks.com. Visit the Vox Pop website at www.voxpopnet.net. That's V-O-X-P-O-P-N-E-T dot N-E-T. Audio for today's program was recorded for Guns and Butter by Dave Heller. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher.
you're a sniper, trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?